Hello, and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. This is Andrew. And this is Caleb. And welcome to episode 13, The French Connections. If you recall in our last episode, we talked about the Erie, the Cat People, and we talked about the Wenro, we talked about the Neutral, and the Iroquois League has just gone out and wiped these three powerful nations off the map. They, they've killed a lot of the men, and then they've adopted and brought into their communities a lot of the women and children to replace them. They want to keep pushing. They want to keep expanding and gaining more hunting grounds. But what good is all this hunting ground, and what good is catching all these beavers and stuff, unless you've got somebody to sell it to? That's right. This episode, we're going to be looking at another side of kind of our last episode. What we're going to be talking about is taking place at a lot of the same time period from the wars that the Iroquois are waging in the West and Northwest. But we're going to be looking at this now from the French and Iroquois perspective. Yeah, it's, it takes on a more diplomatic approach. Mm -hmm. Because as good as the Iroquois were at war, they were even better at diplomacy. Mm -hmm. Uh, this will also be interesting because we actually have some documentation. The only problem is with documentation is it can be a little one-sided sometimes. All of this documentation we have is written journals from the Jesuits, who I'm sure in their heads are being completely honest and truthful, but whenever you take anything from one person's perspective, it's always going to be tilted in their favor. So keep that in mind when we go through this, but we are going to be talking about a short-lived friendship between the Iroquois and the French, the people they've been at war with. And the Jesuits are going to show back up, moving back in with the Iroquois. It's going to be interesting. Things are going to start off well, but they're going to fall apart real quick. <laughs> so let's start with uh, Father Simon Lee Monet. Have you heard that name? He was a, a Jesuit father. He was working in Quebec, Montreal. And at this time, when the war is getting ready to wage on with the Erie, they get some emissaries sent up from the Onondaga. Well, what the Onondaga want to do is they are thinking, all right, if we're going to be sending all of our warriors to the west, we need to shore up the northeast and make sure that the French aren't going to be launching any invasions or the remnants of the Huron and Algonquin that are there aren't going to be launching any invasions. Because how many people did we say invaded the Erie Territory in 1653, Caleb? It was over 1,500, I think. And so you're pulling people from Onondaga, Mohawk, Oneida, pretty far west, and you want to make sure that your villages aren't going to be smoldering ashes when you come back, right? Right. Uh, now, when these ambassadors show up, they want to talk to the French, obviously, but they also make it clear that they will be representing the Algonquins and the Hurons as well. They have absorbed a lot of them into their nations at this point, and they've submitted to them. Yes, and, so they've set up some of them almost like uh, vassal states. Yes. Like some villages are actually fully Huron, but are enveloped in the Iroquois yeah. territory. Uh, th those that haven't been fully adopted, they've basically been told, you have to come and live here. They set up a town for them to live in, and they've been accepted kind of into their nation, but they're still kind of plebeians. Would that be the right word? Yeah, I mean, they, they are members, but like you said, this, is, this has all happened in the last about 10 to 15 years that this has happened. So you, you do want to make sure that these people are still going to be loyal to you and be uh, part of your extended longhouse. So these ambassadors show up and they, I love the way they start off. We talk about what great orders these people were, but they start off, you have wept too much. It is time to wipe away your tears shed so plentifully by you over the deaths of those whom you've lost in war. And then 
here is a handkerchief for that purpose. You know, it's just so poetic and... And it's part of the culture too, because if you look at that, that's kind of how the condolence ceremony starts off. Offering the wampum and trying to use the wampum to take away the tears. So it is a legitimate approach in their eyes to make peace. And also, it is very poetic. Now, whenever ambassadors from one side or another with these Native American tribes, they always had this protocol. And that was, if you ever, you watch Game of Thrones, right? You ever hear them say, words are wind? They kind of had that. Yes, it's, it's really good to say good words, but you, you need something to back it up. So a lot of times when they'd be giving great speeches, they would have gifts. And they would give a long speech about something, and then they would give you a gift or a token to remember this. And it's saying, these aren't just words, here's something to give to you. So they start to go down this list of like 64 things or something like that. Uh, they, call, they call gifts. And uh, one of them was, this gift is a request that you will send fathers to come teach our children and make them Christian people. Hmm. And then they say, another gift is that we ask for French soldiers to defend our villages for the inroads while we attack the Cat Nation, the, the Erie as we mentioned earlier. So they're going down all this list, and a lot of them are things like, these aren't gifts, these are requests. But no, the, these are gifts in a way because they know that That's the Jesuits, the want. yes, they want to come and send their missionaries into them. So they're actually saying, we're going to give you a gift. You guys can come and live in our village. They, <laughs> they literally said that as one of their gifts. So then they start to get to uh, the nitty-gritty. They've said all the nice words. They've said, you can come live with us. You can do all these things. And now they say, uh, could we have some weapons to go fight the Erie? So then to finish everything off, one more person steps up. And this person had a lot of say. Because this person was different than the other Iroquois ambassadors. Because this person used to be a Huron captain before being captured and adopted, and now became a captain among the Iroquois. So he steps forward and says to the Huron and the French, my brothers, I've not changed my soul. Despite my change of country, my blood has become Iroquois. Though I dwell among them, my heart is all Huron. So he, he steps up and he tells them, this is a good thing for us to become allies with the Iroquois. And this helps seal the deal with everybody hmm. because they feel like they can trust him because a lot of them have known this person and he was friends with some of the last Huron that are still left around New France. So obviously the Jesuits and the French were eager to go and make peace with these people. But how many Jesuit fathers do you think they have? I really don't know, but I'm guessing less than a few dozen. Yes, I, th I think even that's pretty high guess. What are, what are Jesuits? They're not just priests, they're also educated people. They're people that can, you know, take care of your educating. They're also basically the doctors of the times. They set up their hospitals. They're not an unlimited commodity, a commodity yet. And you have to have people that are willing to literally go and die somewhere. Yes, and if you recall... Not too long ago, these, uh, these French martyrs are still in their heads. This is less than seven years yeah. since this time has happened. So everybody wants to be sure that this isn't just going to become a bloodbath and we're going to waste all of these Jesuit fathers that are here living amongst them in Quebec. 
But at that time, they did have a Jesuit priest go down to Onondaga and check it out because he wanted to see what the actual mood was. All right, if we're going to send people down, let's go and find out what this place is like. Now, the Onondaga mainly lived in one large town, Caleb. We mentioned in our Champlain episode, this is the town that Champlain attacked. And it sits right on the edge of Lake Onondaga in modern-day Syracuse. So the Jesuit priest comes out, and he starts scouting out the area, and he finds out that, yeah, it would probably be a great place to build a mission. It's got lots of uh, water access for fun eel catching and... Any other fun commodities, Caleb? Did it have free Wi-Fi and uh, extensive cell network? Okay, maybe there wasn't any of that. But he did spend 10 days among the Onondaga and then headed back to Montreal. Some time went by and the Iroquois started to wonder, what's taken these French so long to get their act together? We said we wanted them to come. It should just take, at most, the next season. Because for them to just pack up and leave is not a problem. But for uh, the French, it... Like you said, it's a little more exhaustive and extensive. Not only are they going to set up a French mission, like a, a missionary endeavor, they're also setting up a trading post. And so you've got to get these traders that are willing to come down and live here too. And you've got to have enough men to sustain a trading post. Now, from Quebec down to the Onondaga City, it's, I think, roughly about 500 miles which we think of 500 miles, hey, you can drive that and, you know, an afternoon if you need to. Leave at lunchtime, you can be there by dinner. It This was, I think it was like a 30-day journey. Yep, one way <laughs> uh, I read was 28, but yeah, depending on whether. <laughs> and don't think of it as a straight line because you've got something in the way. You've got a thing called the Adirondack Mountains mm -hmm. in between there. And so the main way to go was to take rivers. So you go down the St. Lawrence River jet into Lake Ontario, and then there's another river called the Oswego, which is at Oswego, and you travel backtracking east up the Oswego, and it splits, and you can either go one way and go up towards modern-day uh, Oneida Lake, or you can go the southerly branch, and that takes you to Lake Onondaga, both very large lakes. Mm -hmm. So it was common with any type of journey like this, it's true, it does have to be done at the right time of year. You do not want to try and make this trek during winter. Uh, Lake Ontario doesn't freeze over, but some of these rivers do, and most of the Finger Lakes do, especially back then where we have records that it was a lot colder in the winters. Mm -hmm. But but you're right, It's it's now been a year, and they're still sitting in their village wondering... Okay, we invited the Jesuits to come after they've been wanting to come for a hundred years, <laughs> and uh, they're not here. We wanted them to put a trading post here so that we can trade our furs without traveling 500 miles, and there's no trading post here. So they're starting to think that maybe they're just, you know, beating around the bush to keep them from raiding their, their towns and villages. They don't just send any ambassador this time. They send their great chief and... It doesn't say, but most likely it was the Taradajo Garanconte. And he was the Onondaga chief. And he personally goes up to Quebec in uh, Montreal and says, what's going on here? Why haven't you guys come yet? It's true, the French kind of were dragging their feet because they're really uh, petrified still because they know what happened to Isaac Jogues and other people. And so they're worried that uh, this could happen to them, right, Caleb? Yeah, they're worried that... They're going to send these Jesuits to their death, 
And I imagine you can only call up the Jesuit mission in France so many times and keep asking for more replacements. So they held a council, and they decided that they pretty much, it was worth it to try and risk it. Well, uh, the governor worded it like this. He says, it's risky and we could lose everything, but it's risky, but we could win everything. Hmm. It was a high-risk, high-reward game, and he knew that. You look at it from all three aspects. You look at it from the trading aspect. We could make a lot of money off this if we get a trading po- a new trading post set up. You look at it from the spiritual aspect. We could save a lot of people from ignorance and burning in hell for all eternity. And then you look at it from the diplomatic. Well, maybe they'll stop raiding us and killing us. So, send in the Jesuits. Now, unlike last time when they just sent... Isaac Jogues and a few Huron and another father with them. This time they're pulling out all the stops because they've got to set up a trading post. So you've got to get a whole band of uh, rough and tumble despotants. You've got to get lumberjacks and traders and all kinds of carpenters and blacksmiths together. And you've got to have somebody that knows the area too, and it would help if they knew the language and knew the culture. Well, it just so happens that they had that exact person amongst them. So now we are proud to introduce Pierre Espère Radisson. Now Pierre Radisson in 1651 or maybe 1652 was out hunting for birds with other men near Three Rivers when all of a sudden he was captured by the Iroquois. Initially, just to set you up the kind of person he is, Caleb, he gets in an argument with the guys that he's hunting with and so he goes off mad and is separated from him. And when he comes back, he finds his whole company has been murdered and scalped. But then he's quickly found by the Iroquois, and he's a young guy at this point, and so he's not immediately killed. He's taken back as a captive, and he's treated very kindly, he says. And he's adopted by a Mohawk family and totally assimilates into their culture. Uh, he's taken to one of the towns near modern-day Schenectady, New York. He goes out hunting with a group of three Iroquois, and one of them is an Algonquin man who's also been captured and is trying to assimilate. But the Algonquin guy tells Pierre, he says, look, you, me, we can get out of here. We kill these guys with us, these three Iroquois, bash them in the head, and we make a break for Canada. I'll take you with me. What do you say? Pierre thinks about it, and he says, all right, let's do it. So they kill the the guys that are going with them. I don't think I'd ever want to hunt with Pierre. It seems like no matter <laughs> no matter who he goes out with, they all end up dead. So they travel for 14 days. So they're getting close back to the settlement of Three Rivers. They get really close back. They get really <laughs> close back. Like, he says that he can see the town. <laughs> and um, they get recaptured. Yeah, I can just picture them seeing the gates of the town, and at that point, they're they're no they get arrogant. They're no longer like sneaking through the brush. They think they're in the clear, so they just start walking on the road. And turns out there is some Iroquois spies, a small group of seven braves hiding in the woods outside the gate, and uh, they are recaptured. The Algonquin, he's dead. They kill him, and they take Pierre back <laughs> to the Mohawk territory. His family that's adopted him pleads on his behalf. They ask that he's treated with mercy. Uh, they say, all right, but they still torture him really bad. But he gets really hardened by this. He says, after that happened to me, I felt no more pain. Okay, there's a braggadocious guy right there. Really, you never felt pain again after that? Maybe compared to what they put him through, but 
Okay. But he, but he lived? He lived. That's amazing to me, especially after he killed, like, the guards that were, gar- you know, keeping an eye on him in the village after being adopted. Yeah. They would spare his life after that. But his family pleaded for him, so they said, all right. He then travels with a group of people to Fort Orange on another trading trip, kind of like similar what happened to Isaac Jogues. And he was recognized as a Frenchman, and the governor offered, said that they were willing to pay a ransom to get him uh, back. They said, we'll pay these Mohawk guys and we'll get you free. It's awfully nice of the Dutch. Uh, But Radisson says, no, no, I'm actually all right. I I don't mind living with the Mohawk now. And they're like, seriously, dude? And he's like, yeah. So he goes back to the Mohawk villages. And then has a little buyer's remorse. (laughs) Yeah. And then he totally changes his mind and says, stupid, stupid, stupid. I had an out out of this. Now the Mohawk are thinking they can trust him because he had an opportunity to leave them, but he decides to go live with them. So then he totally takes off in the middle of the night and goes back to the Dutch, and he gets on a ship and heads back to France. Maybe he just didn't want to reimburse them for the the ransom. So I don't know he, what, his, uh, what his thinking was. So he goes back to France, and then the following year, in 1654, just gets back to New France after all this lollygagging around. And wouldn't you know it, it's time that the Jesuits are leading an expedition to Onondaga, and we're really looking for somebody with some experience. Radisson's got experience. Yeah, Radisson's got really good experience. Hey, let's let's hire Radisson. Now, uh, interesting side note, we're not going to talk about the rest of the life of Radisson, but I wanted to give a quick overview of what happens to him after this. He ends up, after this mission is completed, going back to northern Canada, and then he ends up doing a little privateering for the British, and then doing some privateering for the French, and then going back to the English, where he starts the Hudson's Bay Company as the co-founder. Hudson's Bay Company will come in very prominently in the future, and in fact, the company still exists to this day. It was along the Hudson Bay where they used trading with the northern Indians. Also, side note, that... Radisson, Minnesota is named after him. And as is, have you ever been to a high-class hotel, Caleb? No. (laughs) I'll be honest, I have not. Okay. But have you heard of the Radisson? Yes, I have. It's a very high, affluent hotel chain, is it not? Mm -hmm. Guess who it's named after? Radisson? Yes. (laughs) I thought I was going to say that, and you were going to say, no, actually, it was named after... Doug Radisson. Ichabod Crane. (laughs) Yes, it's named after this guy. So for all of our high affluent uh, listeners out there, if you ever stay at the Radisson, just think of a high fluent hotel named after this rascal. And we're going to see that he is a rascal later on. So he's leading the group of people. They get 50 of these traders, builders, lumberjacks, blacksmiths to start traveling down along with three Jesuits. And they have this whole flotilla of canoes. In addition, they've also got some Huron from that are left over up in Canada, they're going to come down and settle here as well. Yep. So they leave on the 19th of September in 1655. Sounds like an excellent time to get the fall foliage tour up there. Yeah, they better get there quick because it's going to be getting cold soon. They start crossing the lake and making their journey down. And this is going to be a pretty hard trip. When you say hard trip, do you mean that they weren't Boy Scouts and didn't think to prepare enough? I always get so 
confused whenever I'm reading these things with these Indians and these guides and they always seem to be starving in the woods and lost no matter where they go, when they go. I understand they didn't have like a lot of maps. <laughs> it's not that. It's just I don't understand how you can always be out of food and starving in the forest. So they, they get four days into the trip. Four days into the trip? Yeah, four days into the trip and their hunting provisions begin to fall very short. And is, they, is this like a Calvin and Hobbes <laughs> comic book? <laughs> they think they were going to catch walruses yes, on the trip I don't or understand it, but yes, four or five days in, their provisions are running low, they're getting really hungry. Is it's there like, like one fat guy in the back canoe? <laughs> it says that they devour a wild cow that they find. And I was asking Andrew at the start of the show, I'm like, uh, I thought wild cows were, I thought cows were brought over from Europe. So we've decided this must be, before they had a name for American bison, this was a buffalo. Uh, so they get this buffalo, and once again, I'm thinking, okay, here's this 2,000-pound buffalo. They should have enough meat for the rest of the trip, but this must be like on the Oregon Trail where you can only carry 45 pounds back to your camp every day. So you got to shoot <laughs> a buffalo. got 50 guys. <laughs> They're they're starving, and anyway, they find this this uh, buffalo, but it's not a nice buffalo that's uh, that's roaming the prairie. This is a dead buffalo that is actually rotting in a small pond or lake that they come across, oh. and they're so hungry that they drag this buffalo out of the pond and they cook it up. <laughs> and uh, how did the priest say it? He he said, with all the difficulties they had, the meat was very savor and sweet. Yeah, it had been marinating in the sun. <laughs> what do they do for the rest of the month on the travel? So they continue on the journey, and the next day, all of a sudden, the hunters shoot eight bears. I, I can't imagine coming across eight bears in your journey. Then again, maybe if they're in canoes, I know that it was really easy to hunt. If you're in a canoe, you can just row by and shoot them as you go. But anyway, they kill eight bears... Well, that's great. Eight bears. They should be all set yeah, for the rest of the trip. Yeah, they should be good, right? and they should have enough clothing for everybody. <laughs> so they, they sit down, and they start cooking all these bears up. And as you know, bears have a ton of fat. Yeah. And uh, the natives had this, this tradition they do. If they had a great hunt, they would cook up the bears and separate the fat like oil. They'd keep it in a separate pot of just the fat, and they would use that and they would rub it on themselves. Yeah, they used it as a mosquito repellent, actually. Yeah, they'd use it as a mosquito repellent, but it was also uh, you know, there's some symbology to it after a good hunt, too. So then, two days later, one of the men killed 30 bears. It's like, are these guys are these guys really trying to get down here, or are they just going on some rampage hunting trip? And where do you see 30 bears congregating together? Like yes, the it, square mileage habitat for a, a single male bear, male bear is like 50 miles, yeah. isn't it? So their men killed 30 bears and one man killed 10 all by himself. And so then they have the ceremony of, of feast to celebrate the, the great slaughter. And they would drink the bear fat. Like the most prestigious hunter, he would get to just drink the pure fat. and Good for him. I'll pass on that. So they keep working their way down. They have more shenanigans as they go. Can you imagine the Jesuit priest traveling with this ragtag group of uh, young men? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can just imagine the cursing and the, the sexual innuendo stories going on. Okay, and wait till you hear about this. So we're moving on. I think we're on like the 18th. So they've been traveling for, you know, nine days. The Jesuits, they're all in their tents or in their bunks sleeping, and this 
this Huron or this this Indian with them wakes up in this terrible fright. He's having night terrors, and he wakes up and he starts screaming and running around, and nobody can control him. He was having convulsions, like seizure-type things, and everybody's trying to soothe him, and he's just going into this frenzy. So everybody, they, they get like a wink-wink, nudge-nudge, and they hide all the weapons. They're like, <laughs> this guy's a warrior, right? Go in his tent and take all the weapons out of there. This guy is acting like he's demon-possessed or something. He apparently had a dream that he, an animal in his dream comes up and tries to attack him in his sleep, and he has to kill the bear. So they're all looking at each other, and uh, they, they say to this one kid that's with him, go, go get that bear fur and stuff it full of straw and let him stab it and see if that makes him feel better. So they go and they do that. And uh, Did he feel better? Yes. <laughs> and then it says the fear was changed to laughter. Uh, but it was still necessary to help this guy out. Even though he was calming down now, he was, he was still acting crazy. So let me get this straight. We want him to settle down, so we're going to give him his knife back <laughs> so he can go stab this teddy bear that we've made. Okay, carry on. So uh, I'm sure the Jesuits are thinking, okay, how would we do? To, how would we handle this? But the Indians say, no, no, no. Let us show you how to do this. We need to, you know, do a like a sweat lodge type thing. So they set up the sweat lodge. They get him in there. They have him sweat it all out. You know, then they give him some water. It gets weirder. Everybody around the tent starts making animal noises while he's in there in the sweat house. But at the end of it all, he just goes to sleep like a baby, and and the next day is perfectly fine. And all the Jesuits and everybody's just looking at each other like, what the heck was that last night? No, you know, they've had dealings with these people for a long time, so they've never seen anything like that. After getting over people with night terrors and overdosing on bear meat and bear fat, <laughs> they finally make it to Onondaga, right? Don't forget eating rotted aged buffalo. water buffalo. So they finally make it up to Lake Onondaga, and they are greeted warmly, friendly, by the Onondaga Nation. Yes, very warmly. They're met by one of the, the sachems, and he guides them into Onondaga, and they say all these nice words. Like we said, they they make a great speech, and these speeches take hours sometimes. And then to their surprise, when they're finished, one of the Jesuits stands up, and he gives his own speech. But here's something that really impresses them. He gives them a speech in their own language. And nobody had really ever done this, and it said that they applauded. They were so amazed that he spoke their own language so well. Really? Had he been learning from Iroquois captives, or did he just I stumble in broken Huron? I think that it was probably he was speaking Huron. He'd become fluent in Huron, and it was just close enough where so, everyone could still understand him. But even, even Huron, I think that they weren't used to white people being able to speak poetic, you know, kind words like that. Is probably very broken, mm -hmm. broken speech up until then. Yeah. At the same time, a lot of these people started actually meeting some of their old friends because many of the Huron and Algonquin had been captured in years past, had been resettled here, and so they actually knew people by name. Yeah. That had become Christians and then captured. In uh, the Jesuits' journals, they talk of these great reunions where some of their former flock people used to come to their church for years. They come into the village and they run up and they just embrace each other and they ask each other how they've been. and mm -hmm. So it's playing out like this is exactly what we wanted. 
The French and the Iroquois and the Huron are all getting along. Everything is wonderful. Meanwhile, back in Quebec, uh, the governor has another delegation come and visit him, and this is the Mohawk delegation. Uh, they've come to lodge a formal complaint. Can you imagine why the Mohawk are a bit upset, Caleb? Well, in the past they've been upset because the Mohawk are the furthest Iroquois nation to the east, so most trade has to go through them. So I imagine they're probably mad about uh, the French becoming friends with the Onondaga. That's exactly the issue. And so we would now like to introduce another character to the narrative, and he has the moniker that he's most famously known as. They call him the Flemish Bastard. You think he went by this name? I don't think he went <laughs> by that name. Um, hey, everybody. I'm the Flemish Bastard. <laughs> to the Dutch, he probably went by John. <laughs> um, he was the son of a Dutch father and a Mohawk mother. But if you remember in Mohawk and Iroquois culture, it was the mother's line that was predominant. And so even though he was half Dutch, they considered him fully Mohawk. And he grew up in a Mohawk village, learning the Mohawk and Dutch languages. And so he was a very skilled orator as well. And he was used to negotiating between the Dutch and the Mohawk. And so now he's sent as a delegation to go up to Quebec and find out why they have thought that it's a good idea to go to the Anadaga. So he is famous for asking these rhetorical questions. Quote, Ought not one enter into a house by the door, and not by the chimney or roof of the cabin? Unless he be a thief, and wish to take the inmates by surprise, we, the five nations, compose but one cabin. We maintain one fire, and we have, from time immemorial, dwelt under one and the same roof. Well then, will you enter not by the cabin door, which is at the ground floor of the house? It is with us, Mohawk, that you should begin, whereas you, by beginning with the Anadagas, try to enter by the roof through the chimney. You have no fear that smoke may blind you, our fire may not be extinguished, and you may fall from the top to the bottom, having nothing solid on which to plant your feet." What do you think that means, Caleb? Well, do you remember the narrative we said? It was in one of our first episodes where we talk about how they looked at the five nations as being one longhouse. So the Anadaga are the fire of the keepers. That's where the Tadadaho lives. They are in the center of the five nations. But what did we say the Seneca were called? We said they were called the keepers of the western door, and the Mohawk were keepers of the eastern door. And in a longhouse, you normally just have two doors. You know, and, and sometimes in some of the big ones, they would have more doors. But you've got a door on each end. Mm -hmm. So if you want to go into that longhouse, you better come through the Seneca or you better come through the Mohawk. And he's saying, are you guys Santa Claus? Would you climb down a chimney? Because what happens if you climb down a chimney? You get burned. It's a poetic rhetorical question, but it's also kind of a veiled threat. And so he starts complaining, he lists other grievances. He said, why would you go to the Anadaga and not send missionaries to us and set up a trading post? And if I was the French governor, I'd say the last missionaries were sent to you to kill. But now, to be fair, that was not all of the Mohawk. It was only the Bear Clan that were responsible for that. But still, he's viewing it. Why are you just going to the Anadaga? Why aren't you coming to us too? Because if we could have a, a Dutch trading post a few miles away and a French trading post... 
man, we'd be made. But again, they're viewing it as they're getting cut out of uh, the mm -hmm. deal where they could get more better trading goods and gifts. So in the meantime, while the Mohawk are chewing uh, the governor out up in Quebec, down in Onondaga, the elders of the Onondaga are giving gifts to the Jesuits and the leaders there. Their first gift, they give them 500 porcelain beads, and they say these are to wipe the eyes and to wipe your tears from the murders committed in our countries over the years. And then they gave them 500 more beads to strengthen their lungs and to help their throats. So they're giving them all these these nice gifts, and then they say, here's 2,000 beads that might be an open door of the cabin where they have lodged us in order that the French might see the kind treatment they receive, the beautiful mats upon which we respond, and the pleasant faces greeting us. Well, that's ironic. <laughs> yeah, it's the same analogy of an open door. <laughs> yeah, it's just funny to picture these angry Mohawk up in Quebec in the meantime, everybody's being welcomed and greeted by the Onondaga and being given all these gifts and being said all these nice things. So things are going pretty well. They set up a mission. They start talking around to people. They they instantly have people to come to their chapels because they've got Huron Christians that are there. And they start branching out. They start sending people over to the Cayuga and the Seneca to start establish um, missions as well. Right? Right. Now, behind the scenes going on, this is where it's kind of that fog of war. We don't really know, diplomacy-wise, what the Iroquois are doing with each other in diplomacy. We know that the Mohawk are not happy, but we don't know what the Mohawk are saying to the Onondaga and what the Onondaga are saying to the Mohawk at this point. Based on what's about to happen, we think that the Mohawk are starting to raise issue with this. And remember, Onondaga is the place where the five nations come together to hold their councils. So at some point this year, a council is going to be held in the Seneca, and the Mohawk and all the others are going to be showing up too. And there might be some ire raised about this issue. So, so not everybody's happy that the black robes have come, because again... The black robes can be a symbol of death and pestilence. When they first get to Onondaga, everything's going great. Everybody's saying nice things. Everybody's being welcomed. They actually, uh, some people are, some of the French are getting adopted into families, and the priests themselves are adopting other people and becoming like a father and a mentor to other people, saying, I'm going to adopt you, and now we will be wow. one family. It's sounding really good so yeah, far. Yeah, it's sounding really good. But then... There's things start to pop up that start to make kind of a split, and you, you start to see some people siding with the, the Jesuit priests and, and other people pushing away from everything they're saying. There's lots of records of them actually being able to witness and baptize a lot of children. Uh, in the meantime, while this is going on, there is uh, captives being brought in from the Erie because they're at war at the time, so they're bringing every other day there's being captives being brought in and being tortured and killed and the Jesuits are going up and talking to these people too, trying to baptize them and, and doing what they can to help them before they're killed. Mm. Uh, so there's actually one story of a 10 year old eerie boy who was being ready to be tortured and he was, he was up there being burned and tortured and uh, the priest said, let me give him a drink. And they consented to it. So then he came up and uh, he gave him a drink, and he dipped his handkerchief in the water, 
and baptized him then and there secretly so that they didn't see it. And uh, the ten, even though he's just a 10-year-old boy, it said he didn't scream or anything. He just took the torture, you know, like a man, like he was expected to, even being that young. So they've been there a few days now, and they're, they're doing what they can in the village. They ask, can we build our chapel now? It, as soon as we can, because, you know, we're here living in your, in your uh, lodges right now, but we'd really like to make this trading post and this mission that we were brought here to do. So where can we do this? So the Frenchmen come, and they, they come down with their canoes, and they pick a spot. And uh, they know where the spot is today. Did you know that? Yes, they've set up a, an artificial recreation of it in Syracuse. I heard there's actually some restaurant that's built right over the original foundation of it. Mm-hmm. But they build this place near this... I, and, and this makes me wonder if there was some reason why they were encouraged to put it here. But they put it near... This, they called it like the evil water place or something like that. It, this, what it was was a saltwater spring. But they, all they thought of uh, was when you drink from this, you get sick. It's poisoned. Yeah. It's salt water. So anyway, they have them build this mission house right there. Uh, the Jesuits look at it and they say, oh, salt water, that's great. We can use that for salt because they don't use any salt in their cooking. <laughs> so we can have the salt there. There's fresh water from Oneida Lake. And they look around, and uh, th- there's lots of eels, like thousands of eels. They say that in this place, they've got different types of fish all year long. The salmon are running, and then as soon as the salmon are done, the sturgeon come, and then they have the eel spawn. The Jesuits say, thank you very much. This is a great place. Uh, it's got nice lush meadows and deer and bear. And so they start working, and they have this place. Bu- it says they have it built in a day. So I picture what it looked like. You know, if it was just wooden structure, if they just had 60 people come through, they probably could build a, a little chapel in a day. Mm-hmm. And then they start to build a palisade around it. So think of it as like a little mini fort right next to the Onondaga main town. And then they start building their other buildings inside it. And so it's it's a segregated community, but, uh, you know, they've got it there for protection for themselves as well. And they put up a gate and everything. So this is when they start to run into problems. The Jesuits... Uh, like we said with that, uh, that, that one Indian that had the dream where he had to stab the bear and he went completely nuts, they, there were certain uh, people that believed that you had to act on your dreams if you had them. And uh, the Jesuits said that's nonsense. You don't have to do that. So the Huron, some Huron came up and told the Iroquois, yeah, they told us not to embrace our dreams too. That was right before our nation fell. And we all got captured. Just FYI. Thought you guys might want to know that. They told us that too. Hmm. And so this, they, they start to think about this for a minute. I don't know if the Huron really went up and kind of said it like that, like, you know, to plant this in their heads. But they basically said, uh, these guys are bad news. Uh, when these guys showed up and started praying with us, started converting us, started telling us to not embrace our ways of the past, that's when everything started going bad for us. We started dying, diseases started coming, we started losing in the wars. And now, uh, they're here with you. Also, I heard that all these children that they're baptizing, they, they always write their name down, and then the, this rumor came that they were sending their names back to France, and they were like doing some sort of witchcraft on all the names to curse them. And uh, this started to freak a lot of people out, especially those that 
I mean, the, a lot of the other Huron understood a lot of the symbology and Catholicism, but it was still relatively new to the Iroquois at this point because they, they especially the Onondaga, they didn't have a lot of experience working with the Jesuits at this point. Mm-hmm. These are the first ones to ever come into their village. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the chief is trying to placate this, and he's very open to the French and to Christianity, and he actually makes decrees that the Christians should be protected while he's there. But one man does not control everybody else. Everybody in Iroquois nations was relatively autonomous. And so it's not like he's a dictator that can just tell people to believe what they want. So while some people are going around trying to say the good things, other keep hammering that uh, these people are the cause of everything. Uh, These people are killing our children, bringing these sicknesses. And every day there's people out there hammering these things. And uh, and then they start to see these people that have converted to Christianity get really sick. In fact, there's this one woman that is sick unto death. And then her little boy, who also converted, gets really sick. He's only 12 years old. And this starts to make everybody think, see, I told you so. This is proof. This is proof right here. But then the Jesuit goes in and prays for him and it's recorded that he was healed almost immediately. So then everybody's like, wait a minute, does this prove that he got sick because of the Jesuits or does this prove that the Jesuits healed him? So (laughs) it splits people right again. Or are the Jesuits practicing witchcraft? Did the Jesuits make him sick just so they could make him better Mm -hmm. or did something else make him sick and they healed him? So nobody knows what's going on. You got people on both sides just getting split back and forth. And I can just see a few cynics in there. It doesn't mean anything. (laughs) You got sick, you got better. At the same time, the Mohawk are whispering in the Onondaga's ear, and they say, you know, you really should cut ties with these French because it would really be unfortunate if um, your guest suffered a horrible fate seeming to imply that if they didn't get rid of them, that the Mohawk may do a sneak attack and destroy them. That's, that's hearsay. That's not very well documented. But that could be what's going on at the same time because the Mohawk are a little, uh, little jealous that the French got a new bow. Here's another thing that I think caused a lot of uh, issues in the village, and that was the fact that in Christianity, you get married once and that's it. When uh, in their culture, you tended to basically date whoever you wanted, sleep with whoever you wanted, and then once you got married, you were committed to them. But you could break off the marriage if if you weren't if your husband didn't like you anymore because you were always nagging. He'd be like, "I'm just going to marry somebody else," and that was okay. So then all these these men are going out there, and these women are refusing to sleep with them. Uh oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in uh, Back then, you would have this this courting thing where uh, you would kind of have, I don't know, trial marriage. If you two were interested in each other, you'd live with each other, sleep with each other a while. If it didn't work out, you'd go your separate ways. That sounds very familiar to today's culture. (laughs) Yeah, it does. And Uh, I can see people getting mad at priests today when they say that that's not right, too. But anyway, I digress. So anyway, these guys are going out on the prowl, and these girls are saying, no, I'm saving myself uh, for marriage. (laughs) And all of a sudden, you know, it's just... 
They're like, okay, this is the last straw. <laughs> we could deal with everything else, but that is not cool. Uh, also, like I said, uh, acting on your dreams, that was something that was done religiously at the time. For example, there was there was a an Indian that uh, fell asleep and he, he had a dream of he and his 10 friends going into ice water, going into an ice water hole and coming up out of another hole. So he wakes up, he invites his friend over for his friends over for a feast and he says, you all love me, right? And they say, yeah, yeah, we love you. And he said, well, I had a dream that we all went into the ice water and the frozen lake and we all popped up at a different hole. And sure enough, they all said, well, we'll do it then because we got to make sure that your dream comes true. So they all go in, they jump in the hole, and one of the guys can't find the way out and drowns under the ice in the lake. And the priests see this. And they're like, they just don't understand this. They're like, why, why do they keep acting on these dreams? Another day, one of the people that's already been, uh, already been uh, railing on why the Jesuits are bad comes up, and he says to one of the priests, I had a dream last night. I had a dream that I ate and killed three Frenchmen, as he looks at the three priests. Is this directed by M. Night Shyamalan? Yeah, this, it's just, it's basically a threat, uh, but it's also, and guess what? I've got to embrace the dream because that's how it you do it. And then at the same time, all the other Indians are stepping up and they're saying, no, 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 uh, how about this? How about, uh, you know, uh, here, why don't you stab this? We'll, we'll, we'll dress up some hay in his clothing and you can kill that. And he says, no. And they say, uh, how about a dog in his place? No. How about two dogs? And he says, okay, two dogs will be a worthy sacrifice for uh, for killing the Jesuits. But the Jesuits just did not understand uh, these dreams and why they affected them so much. And this started to really scare them. When you start having people come up and, and just say, I had this dream, I got to do it. Even people that uh, are your friends, if they believe that, who can you trust? They might seem fine to you, and then they come up and they want to kill you or hurt you. Uh, it can get really scary. Mm -hmm. So at this point, they realize that things are really getting tense. And so they have some people out with the Seneca and the Cayuga working among them, and they do a recall. They want them to come back to Onondaga because they say it's not good for us to be spread out. We should all be together uh, till we figure out what's going on. Eventually, things get so bad that they're fearful to even go out of their stockaded little fort that they've built for themselves. And they start conversing amongst themselves, and they decide that they're going to head back to Canada. It makes you wonder how bad it must have been, because they're there. They've already left with the knowledge that they would. it's possible they could never go home again and that they would be killed. But they're there with 60 other people, remember. Mm -hmm. It's not just the French Jesuits there. Things are so bad, however, that they feel like they can't just leave. They're worried that if they leave that they could either be killed on the spot or they're fearful that they could be attacked on the way home. So they feel like they need to sneak off in the middle of the night. Now, again, we only have their side of it. We don't... The Onondaga still could be fine with them. And we know from records that the, the chief of the Onondaga was very hospitable to them and advocated for Christians, and he will, in time in the future, eventually become a Christian himself. So to say that everybody wanted to kill them is not quite fair, but the French interpreted it that way. So they come up with this elaborate ruse to escape. You ever gotten sick, Caleb? 
Yes, I have gotten sick before. And has ever, anybody ever thrown a feast to help you feel better? No, but I could probably be okay with that. Okay. Well, it was a common thing, and Radisson had learned this in his time among the Mohawk. Uh, apparently that when people got sick, we mentioned in one of our episodes that when people got sick, the whole clan and village would take care of somebody if they were ill. And not only take care of them, but they would hold a feast thinking that if you held a feast and celebrated really well, that it would improve the help, lift the spirits, you could say, of the person that was ill. And so one of these French young men pretended to get sick. The Jesuits didn't really approve of this plan because they were, well, what's that word called? Lying? So this uh, guy pretends to be sick, and they say, oh, we're going to hold a feast, and so they, they've brought pigs with them. I don't know where... They were, they were starving on the trip, but they brought pigs. <laughs> I, I don't get it. But anyway, they had pigs, and so they slaughtered some pigs, and they hold a great feast, and they invite a hundred of the Anadaga men to come down and feast with them and have a party so that this guy can get better. And... I've been in other cultures where you go to a place and people give you food and you're totally stuffed and they just keep piling more food on and that's what would happen. And they also brought alcohol. We'll get into the vices of alcohol among the Indians in the future, uh, but let's just say that it was not good because they had never really had it before. And so there's a lot of drinking, a lot of eating going on, and whenever they'd say they'd they were full, the, the pretended sick guy would shout out, You guys want me to die? You guys want me to die? You need to eat more and you need to sing more. And the Jesuits have brought fiddles with them and they start fiddling. And the middle of the night, everybody falls asleep. People are now hungover. And Radisson says, All right, here's our chance. We can bash every single one of these guys in the head and nobody will know. And the Jesuits said, Oh yeah, I guess that sounds like a great idea. Let's go for it. No, the Jesuits had a spine and stood up and said, We're not killing anybody. <laughs> we're getting out of here, but we're not killing anyone. Uh, meanwhile, they had disassembled parts of their houses and had built these huge flat-bottom boats. And so they open up their gate and they sneak out with all these boats, get down in Lake Onondaga, and sail out in the middle of the night. Yeah, if they tried building the boats outside, obviously it would have been noticed, hey, why are these guys building all these boats? So they closed all the curtains, and they'd been slowly building these boats for the past few weeks inside. And they were so paranoid that uh, the Anadaga, and who knows if they were or not going to kill them, but they were so paranoid that when they left, they made straw men and put some clothes on them and had them sitting around different places at the fort so that if they walked by, they would think that there were still people in there. So they're already out in the middle of the night, heading down Lake Onondaga, which connects to the Oswego River, which connects to Lake Ontario, which connects to St. Lawrence, which gets you back to Quebec, which takes, as we know, about a month. Uh, so when the Onondaga wake up in the morning, all hung over, they start stumbling around, and it's deathly quiet. What's, what's going on? Maybe they partied harder than we did. And when they go to check on them, nobody's answering. They look in and they think they see some people. They're like, what's going on? They break down the gate and they go in and everybody's gone. The French are not harassed on the way back. There's no evidence that anybody tried to track them down and kill them. 
Um, they did lose a few men in the rapids going down the St. Lawrence River. Yeah, I read one person drowned. I, I think it was, I can't remember if it was three or eight, but several people drowned oh, okay. on the way back. Um, and they went back, and that was the end of the mission to Onondaga. So do you think they called it a success? How many years were they there? Less than two. I don't know. It depends on what your definition of success is. This ends up ticking off the Onondaga, rightfully so. They just left in the middle of the night. And so we're going to see the uh, raids are going to pick up again. So from that aspect, I think it fails. From the aspect of the Jesuits, um, they did get to encourage some of their Huron people, but then they just up and abandoned them. Now, there are some interesting things in this story that just don't really jibe, right? Yeah. It's like, they're afraid they're going to be killed, so they, they, they all run out, but then there's no proof of anybody trying to track them down and kill them. There's no record of anybody being injured or killed throughout the time that they're there. No. Yeah, it's really mysterious, and that's the problem when you only have one-sided things. Obviously, they felt that way, and there was this veiled Mohawk threat, but, yeah, you look at it, why would the Onondaga invite them down? The, the Onondaga spent three years trying to get them there, and the Onondaga want this trading post there so that all the other four nations are bringing furs to them. So from a, from a material standpoint, it doesn't make sense. It, it, it really, there are some pieces missing yeah. here, and so, we'll just never know. That's what I think we should just leave it at. I would say there's obviously more to this story, but we just don't have it. So just be aware uh-huh. that... And so when the Jesuits and the French write this story, they think that these untrustworthy Onondaga just invited them down to stab them in the back. But I don't really agree with that at all. I think the Onondaga had good intentions, and I think the French had good intentions. And like I said, we'll leave it at that. We hope that you'll join us again next time, and we're going to talk about how relations are going to break down again between the Iroquois and the French. Yeah, this episode, we actually wanted to cover a lot more than this. Uh, We actually had five other stories that we wanted to get into from different people's perspective, but it just became too long. So Andrew and I are actually going to work on those shortly and get those to, you know, probably by next week. We'll try to stick to that. In the meantime... Thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone. A couple weeks ago, we hit the 10,000 download mark. So I I guess that makes us legit somewhat now. A couple new announcements. We have now been approved. If you have the iHeartRadio app and you're sick of... If you can't be bothered switching between apps on your iPhone or Android to go to a podcast app and search us, now, if you're already in iHeartRadio, you can search us and all of our episodes are right there. For your listening enjoyment. Also, we'd like to remind you guys, if you listen to us and you think we're halfway decent or even kind of decent, you can like our Facebook page. Or even if you don't like us, but you liked one thing we said, yeah. you can find something nice to say about us. Yeah. So like us on Facebook and then you'll get to see what we post about. And we like to post things that aren't even related to the podcast that deal with the Haudenosaunee. Mm-hmm. Also uh, on our website and also on Facebook, after every episode, a lot of times we talk about places, we talk about people, we talk about events, and sometimes it's hard to keep track of all of that just from listening. So on our website, we now have a bio page where you can look up any person that we've said, and we're going to update this every episode, and you can click on the link and see a full bio of that person that we mentioned. Also, 
uh, we make maps and we post them on a link on our website called Maps, and you can see the area that we're discussing for that week. And if things are too confusing, I have also built a timeline page where you can go and see the timeline of the entire Haudenosaunee history running from where we started at the founding of it all the way up to the current narrative. And again, we'll be updating that as we go. Also, one other thing for our listeners out there, if you listen to us on iTunes and you like us, like really enjoy it, and you're like, hey, I'm getting all this free content and free knowledge because these guys don't ask for, we don't ask for any wampum beads, or we don't ask that you come send anybody to come establish a trading post with us. Yep. We don't ask you to do that. We don't even ask for beaver pelts. No, we do not ask. We do this out of the goodness of our hearts. However, if you would like to be adopted by us and join our clan, I think we're going to call it the Wild Sweet Potato Clan. <laughs> if you've listened to previous episodes, you'll know the joke. So if you'd like to join our clan, we're going to set up a thing on our webpage where we're going to let everybody that leaves us a nice iTunes review, become honorary clan members, and we'll post your user IDs on the page. Yeah, so we're actually going to have a clan page on there where uh, we will constantly update all of our new adopted clan members to the Wild Sweet Potato Clan, and you can go right on our website and point to all your friends and say, check it out. You know Iroquois History and Legends, that really cool popular podcast show? No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me tell you about it. Shh! Yeah, I've heard of that. Well, look here. I'm one of the adopted clan members. And then you can look and see the name, your name on there with like two other people. It's like Waldo66 forever with like a four. And then Andrew's and my names. And then your name could be under that. And wouldn't that be cool? It would be. So I guess we should tell you what the website is. Go to longhousepodcast.com. Get it? It's a longhouse and we're a podcast. So longhousepodcast.com. You can also search for us. We're on everything now. iHeartRadio, Libsyn, Android, iTunes. If you have the internet and haven't heard of us by now, well, you're probably not listening to this. You're probably not listening. (laughs) Bye, everybody.